100 days after 100 long days of people on Twitter debating how much a cake with sprinkles should cost, who pays on a first date and influences being cancelled, Premier League football is finally back. And my word, what a relief it is. So quit fretting about that girl you've been messaging during lockdown. She has no intention of seeing you. She's just bored. Focus on the football. Hello, hello and welcome to the Culture Club podcast. The only people we want cancelled are managers who play too left for its centre-backs. I'm your host, Max, and alongside me this week are Richard. Hi, Richard. Hello, mate. How you doing? I'm fine. How are you? Yeah, I'm all good, mate. I'm all good and I'm ready to go. And we have Mamalas. Yes, hello. How are you doing? Are you all right, everyone? Yeah, I'm just known as Small Alice 93, a United fan, and I'm here to put my thoughts into, like, into this. And we have uh, Carrots. Hello, hello. I'm uh, good, so, just want to uh, keep it chill. Richard is a Spurs fan, right? And you can follow him at Spursy Podcast, and you can follow Carrots at AFCKs uh, on Twitter. So, guys, it's been quite a long time without football, but finally we got our Premier League fixed. Um, how have you been finding lockdown and coping without football? Uh, first, uh, Richard. Yeah, it's it's been tough, hasn't it? I mean, you know, sometimes we have to have the summer without football uh, when there's no international tournaments, and that's hard enough. But at least then there's some transfer talk to go on, and you know, there's friendlies. So this has been something very new for all of us. Um, for some of our clubs, the you know, it came at a good time, i.e., Tottenham. For some of the clubs, it came at a bad time, i.e. clubs who were on a roll like Man United and Sheffield United. But look, it is what it is. You know, we keep busy on Twitter and, and doing our podcasts and, and now it's back. So, yeah, I'm, I'm all good. What about the rest of you guys? Uh, yeah, I've found it quite hard. But to be fair, uh, binging on a lot of TV shows has managed to get me through um, watching some old City games. You do what you do to cope, really, but... As soon as Bundesliga got back, I was fine. I could sort of um, cope really a bit better. And then yeah. La Liga came back and the Premier League started, came back. So it's just, it was hard at first, but it got better all the time. Uh, what about you, Momolas? Um, for me, it was, I was actually expecting the league not to come back. So I thought that they were going to do it game by game basis. So the points. So I was really happy when they said that they're actually trying to planning on working it back and bringing games back to be played because that's the most fair way to end the season. So I actually had exams, so I really had to do those. But apart from that, it was all right. And what about you, Karis? Um, Yeah, I'm good. I'm just the same as Mo. I had uni exams, so I was just trying to focus on doing them, getting it right, getting the best grades I can. Then other than that, I've just been doing football videos, like editing them, playing FIFA, talk to friends and family. But yeah, it's been all right, I guess. A little break from football is not too bad. Yeah, sometimes you need that break and to really do other stuff and take your mind away from it. Um, how have you made the football itself? Um, without, how have you found it without the crowd and seeing the managers shout from the touchline constantly? Um, just football without fans. What, what are your thoughts, Momolas? Um, for me, it was, especially when the Bundesliga came back, it was really weird at first because I think the Bundesliga, the first weekend, it did not have any crowd noise. Nor did it have, for example, in La Liga, they cover up the fans, so they cover up the seats. So it doesn't. your brain doesn't recognise almost there's no fans there. So I think personally, for me, the best way to do it is to cover up the seats in some way, 
whether it's like banners like CE yesterday and have some sort of crowd noise. And that way it makes it seem as if fans are actually there. That's how I'll do it. Uh, speaking of crowd noise, uh, what did you make of the crowd noise uh, yes- on yesterday's games, uh, Richard? Yeah, it, it was quite interesting, wasn't it? Um, I, I saw that, you know, on, on the social media platforms, there was, you know, there was a lot of love for it and there was also a lot of hate for it. For me, it was better than what I watched in the German league where there was just no crowd noise. Um, so it did give that feel a little bit more that we were actually at a game. Um, obviously, quite hard for them to get it right because every time someone has a shot, five seconds later, if the keeper saves it, there's a kind of all. Um, but but look, you know, I think they're doing what they can do. I think it's better than doing nothing, and and needs must, right? Needs must. Yeah, and plus it's got to take time to get the crowd noises right. And like you said, with the Bundesliga, it just feels weird, like a training game. You just hear the manager shouting, and it's not really enjoyable. Um, yeah. Carius, what did he make of it? Um, I didn't think it was too too bad, to be honest. Like, we obviously knew that we, we had to expect something like this happening. But I'd say that it depends on how each club implements it. So I'd say that in the City game, the crowd noise sounded like, it sounded pretty decent, to be honest. Like, it wasn't really out of place or anything. So it's just something that we'll slowly have, slowly have to get used to till things turn to some sort of normality, really. Uh, yeah. Um, also, one thing that's been quite interesting is the aspect of home field advantage. And there's been a lot of away wins. Um, what have you made of that, uh, Richard? Um, do you think that's a serious issue, uh, advantage for away teams now, especially teams who have a bad away record, that now they can um, focus and not really be intimidated by a, uh, by a home crowd? I, I think what we're going to see now... To, to be honest, is we're going to actually see that the ability is going to shine through more than having that home crowd advantage. You know, lots of teams have done well at home. When you look at the likes of Sheffield United, you know, they've made Bramall Lane a fortress. The crowd get behind them. It's a tough place. It's 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 hard to win. It's intimidating. Without that, without that fan base, you're now relying purely on right ability. So no one's going to have that 12th man, no matter how much you pump noise in, no matter where you play, no matter how many seats are in the stand. It's now a football pitch, 11 men v 11 men. And I think more more often than not, what you're actually seeing as per the Bundesliga is that the, the better football team is winning rather than the team with the home advantage. Um, and that's great for certain teams in the Premiership. For other teams like your Norwiches and, as I said, like your Sheffield United at the other end, it's uh, it's going to be a detriment to them. So let's see how it pans out. But do you not think that's the that takes away from the uh, Premier League its appeal, really? Because you have intimidating home crowds for smaller teams, and that causes the upsets. And that's generally the appeal of the Premier League. Anyone can beat anyone. But if the better team is always winning now because there's no home field advantage. That feels like it detracts something from the what the, the product of the league. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, you could you could say that, but I mean, essentially, football's always been about the better team wins. The upsets that we're talking about happen very, very uh, slimly. You know, I, I mean, if you really think of this season, how many big upsets have you seen? Maybe Norwich beating Man City at home, um, Watford beat Liverpool, but but. 
on the whole, the top teams will inevitably win because they've got the better players. So for me, I don't think it takes anything away from the league. Um, I just think it's going to show up players for what they are. Yeah, that's a fair point, really, because last few seasons you've had City and Liverpool getting 90 plus points constantly and rarely losing against the smaller teams. Um, yeah. Terrius, what do you make of um, the home field advantage aspect of uh, fans, uh, of, of uh, post uh, corona football, basically? Yeah, I'd agree that it does make a massive difference, as someone said earlier, like how Sheffield have their big fan base. I'm from South London, so I know that. Crystal Palace have, for example, like in my opinion, the best fan base in the league. So having that 12th man really does affect you and how you play because they give you that extra fire and that extra desire to keep pushing on to the last minute. So it will be good for some players and bad for some players. just depends on their own mindset, really. As There's some players that might get heckled a lot. There's some that might get a lot of love from the fans. So it will feel different to each player really so yeah it will be a bit strange for some of them but it's just about how they want to adapt even after last night's game between Arsenal City Tierney was even saying how it was quite difficult to get used to not having the fans behind you and obviously he's used to having fans when he was playing for Celtic with the Parkhead faithful and even so like even being with Arsenal now not having the fans is just a bit different but they'll all get used to it eventually. Yeah, they, you just have to constantly adapt. Uh, Mamalas, what do you make of that situation about home field advantage? So basically, I think for some teams, it's actually a really good positive thing. So for example, United at Old Trafford, they go one nil behind. The crowd would, ter- would turn on their players. And for other smaller teams like Aston Villa, for example, there'll be that expectation from the crowd that you have to take certain chances. You have to shoot when the player uh, is in the, near the box. For now, there's none of that. So you just focus purely on the game. It's about your mentality. And for a specific player, for example, like Lingard, he's not going to get any hate from the crowd. No one's going to boo when he loses the ball. No one's going to be heckling him when he doesn't. So you can try a lot of things. And for example, so top players, I think, would be able to almost think of it like a training session and be able to focus purely on just playing rather than the performative aspects of football. That's what I think. Yeah, that's true. Plus, like you mentioned with the crowd, especially a club like, say, Everton, when the crowd get on top of you and things aren't going well, that really shirks a player's, player's confidence. So it could work in certain players' favour and other players, like you say, uh, they need that crowd uh, to mask their deficiencies. Um, speaking of um, yesterday's game, uh, you, you mentioned Sheffield United. Uh, what do you guys make of um, the disallowed goal and... It didn't really take long, did it, for there to be controversy in the return of the Premier League? Uh, Richard? Yeah, I mean, it just makes a complete mockery of technology, doesn't it? You know, yeah. with everything with everything that has been implemented, which I actually think, uh, I, I mean, VAR for me completely ruins football. I like the idea that over the years, um, you know, I mean, I've, I've been supporting Spurs for 37 years now. And I, I like the idea that there can be, uh, there can be decisions that go against you. There's decisions that go for you that shouldn't, you know, and they kind of even themselves out over a season. However, when we're talking about goal line technology, I've praised that for the last few years because goal line technology was meant to be the one that there was no controversy. You know, it, it was either a goal or it wasn't. Um, but interestingly, when I was watching um, Sky Sports football last night, 
Um, Jamie Carragher and Mika Richards made a really good point and said, well, if, if, if Hawkeye couldn't see that was over the line, surely somebody within VAR could have turned around and said, well, hang on, we can see it is clearly over the line goal. So definitely a lot of work that needs to be done there. But, you know, if VAR's, if VAR doesn't work and then if Hawkeye doesn't work, then you have to ask yourself, why are we putting in these these measurements that just slow the game down anyway? Let's just go back to uh, go back to, you know, the, the eye of the beholder. That's true, especially with VAR, like you said. If the technology isn't working, I don't think uh, goal line technology was the issue last night. I think the application of it was wrong. But then mm. you have VAR compounding it by not actually correcting that mistake. That's the whole point VAR is there for. C- correct. I mean, they had, what did they have, 90 seconds, was it? Something like 80 seconds to re-watch that. And let's be fair, there are some you know, with handballs and with penalty decisions where you need to look seven or eight times at different angles. There was no need for any other angles. That one clip showed every fan in world football, whether you were a Villa fan, a Sheffield United fan or whatever, that was a goal and it should have been given. Um, and, and, and you know, as Jack Grealish said, you know, Villa got away with it. Yeah, they really did. Um, speaking of the other game, uh, the Arsenal game, um, so... Arsenal actually started quite well. I think in when the injuries happened, I think that's when they really started to lose their momentum and things went downhill from there. Because before that, you saw uh, Eddie and Keith making some good runs and really threatening the City defence. But then as soon as the injuries happened and they had to make the switches, um, I felt like their game, game plan went right out the window and things just went downhill uh, fast from there. And City found this tried and grew into the game and did what they do. Uh, what did you make of the game, Carriers? Um, in terms of the game, if I can sum it up, I feel like we started well for the first 30 minutes or so. Like City were not really being successful because of they were pushing their fullbacks very, very high to get crosses into the box. So it wasn't like how they usually play where they have their wingers pulling out wide and having like De Bruyne and Silva patrol the half spaces. So... They played that. They played that way, and for the first thirty minutes, we were handling it well. But definitely, what um, ruined things for us was firstly the injury to Shaka, which looks like an ankle injury, and the injury to Mary that happened later, which were both in the first twenty minutes. So that kind of disrupted our flow. There wasn't too much stability in the midfield. We didn't get any shots on target, which was quite poor. Um, what else can I say, really? There was a lot of times where we could have played Aubameyang through because he was playing on the left and trying to make those runs inside of Walker, who I thought could have been targeted. But we didn't play those first-time balls to Aubameyang enough. So I'd say the only threatening player really on the pitch was Nketiah. He was really occupying Laporte and Garcia really well, who I think he should have gotten a decision coming his way because Garcia pulled him down at a point. But yeah, I'd say after 30 minutes, it was really uh, City's game and... We didn't really challenge them at all. Like anything we tried to throw at them, they answered it emphatically. So, yeah, it wasn't the best for us. Uh, what did you make of? Uh, I hate to bring it up, but what did you make of David Luiz's uh, horrible cameo and his feature at the club now after that? It's quite honestly, that's probably his worst performance I've seen in the Premier League. Like, let's forget Arsenal, Chelsea. That's the worst performance I've ever seen from him in, in, in this league. Like for that alone, I don't really think I'd give him a new contract because of that. Like when when he came on, obviously you saw 
he deflected the ball into Sterling's path for his first goal this year. Then you saw for the red card, there was no need to pull down Mahrez. You are a defender that has experience of winning the Premier League, winning the Champions League. Like, surely your game know-how should tell you that you shouldn't be dragging an attacker down in that situation. So you could even say that the first two goals are really his fault and he kind of messed up any flow we try to get. So I think that suspension means that um, it will run into the end of his contract. So there was quite a lot of conflicting messages because some, I think Louise was saying after the game that Arteta wants him to stay and he wants to stay, which is why he came to talk to BT. But the board haven't offered him a new contract yet. So it's kind of all up in the air. But if it's down to my personal opinion, I don't think I'd offer him a new contract and that we go all out for a left centre-back. Uh, speaking of his situation, basically his agent, uh, Kia Draption, was talking to TalkSport this morning and he said, the situation from Arsenal's point of view will be resolved this week. Not just David Luiz's situation, there are several issues within the whole structure that will be resolved. Uh, what do you make of that? Yeah, it's quite interesting. I think even, even David Luiz was alluding to there being an issue within the structure because of I think when he came to talk, he said for the last two months... Two months, things haven't been going well. So I'm assuming, I'm not entirely sure, but maybe he hasn't been training well enough or he's had, he's had a little dispute with Arteta. We don't know enough yet, so I'm hoping to find out more and see what was going on. Mamalas, um, what did you make of the game last night? Um, for me, it was really an interesting game. Obviously, the first like, top six game back from lockdown. Um, Arsenal did really well at the beginning. I thought City were getting, not frustrated, but... Their passing wasn't up to par. Kyle Walker gave away the ball really cheaply in the beginning. He was not making the right passes. Um, and then, obviously, Xhaka got injured, which I think was, a, even though Arsenal fans might not like him, but Arteta has used him a lot, and he is their key player in that central midfield. So when he goes away, and even though I personally like Ceballos, but he's not, he's not a six in the same way that Xhaka is, and he could not circulate the ball as well. And then Mari got injured. And then from then on, it was, it was really just a matter of seeing how many can see his score. And for David Lewis, I don't have any basis for this, but I think he might have done it on purpose to make sure that it's his last game. And once his contract runs out, then he's not going to play for the club again. So I'm not sure why he would do that. But because for my scene, I, I listened to the interview with Arteta as well. Uh, not with Arteta, with Ian Wright on YouTube that he'd done over the lockdown period. And I thought, Okay, this is someone who really loves the club and wants to stay and wants to make sure that Arsenal win trophies in the next season and will probably stay. But from his interview yesterday, it's completely a turnaround and it doesn't seem like a player that wants to stay at, at all, personally. So you think he's uh, spiting them and basically saying you shouldn't have played me? Essentially, like if you're not going to give him a contract, why should I play for you, basically? Oh, fair enough. Uh, Richard, what did you make of the game last night? Um, to be honest, I think it was how most neutral fans thought it would go. You know, uh, you know, Man City tend to start games quite slowly this season, uh, which is what probably one of the main reasons why they um, why they're not winning the league this year. Um, they they build up, they build up, and they build up. It got to about the twentieth, twenty fifth minute mark, and De Bruyne starts getting on the ball more. Those balls through the channel stop. 
opening up, the gaps start opening up, you know, Mares and Sterling were just getting in behind and, you know, you could kind of see it coming. I, you know, I shouldn't say this as a Spurs fan, but I kind of felt for Arsenal, to be honest, when, you know, you, you've got a game plan, you've got two players in there that are, are trying to prove a point in, in Jacker and, and, and Mari, you know, both getting injured in the first 25 minutes doesn't help. Uh, then you bring on a player like Luis who, you know, there's clearly something going on at the club. You know, I'm sure there's there's many reasons behind it, but he didn't look in the right frame of mind. Um, and, and and he had a really poor 25 minutes, didn't he? And and, and unfortunately, once City scored the goal, it, it, you kind of knew that there was no way back, didn't you? Yeah, I felt like... I, I actually like the point you made about City starting games slowly this year. Uh, because if you remember last season, City were the team who scored in the first 15 minutes constantly. Uh, teams were really on their guard. And City had like 15 goals or something in the first 15 minutes. But they started quite slowly um, this season quite often. And it's cost them. But this game, I felt like, especially after being rusted for three months, a uh, slow start was to be expected. But then they found their feet. And Arsenal's momentum was halted. Yeah, you kind of have to feel for Arsenal because they get two injuries uh, after not playing for three months, uh, two injuries in the first 15, 20 minutes. Uh, they yep. have to reshape their whole entire game plan. And then you have City who are suddenly finding their rhythm. And anyone will struggle to cope with City once they find their rhythm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, from, from my point of view, and again, look, I'm not an Arsenal fan, but I'd be interested to see, um, you, you know, to see what the Arsenal fan on here thinks. But... It's not a good Arsenal squad, is it? It's, you know, surely from where Arsenal have been, it's declined massively. And when I look at a lot of the players that started and then the players that came on, they were the type of players that, that in years gone by, Arsenal would have put out in League Cup games when Wenger was there. They would have rested their first team and those players would have played League Cup games. Now you're seeing players who, who you know, they're, uh, it's not their fault. They're young, but they're not good enough yet in terms of, you know, Saka and and, and Nketiah and Gwendouzi. All these types of players, for me, they should be gently nurtured into a team. But at the moment, because Arsenal have got no squad depth and no, no experience, all those players are being chucked in at once. And I think you're seeing that. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not, not disrespecting Arsenal because it's very similar uh, at Tottenham. So... I wonder what you guys what you guys make of that. Yeah, what do you make of that, um, uh, Carius? Uh, I was especially in terms of the squad. How would you revamp the squad? Because you've tried to get experience like David Luiz and it's not worked out. Um, so how do you solve the situation where you're not relying on youngsters like Eddie and Keith and um, uh, Bakayo, Bayoko Saka and players like that and throwing in, throwing them in into the deep end? Um, in terms of revamping the squad, it's going to be quite a big challenge. Like, for example, yesterday I put on my Twitter a little ranking of the whole squad. And when I look across the entire squad, if I can count, I would say that there's only five players that are good enough to start for the squad, maybe six at most, to be and put in the start on 11. I listed Leno, Tierney, Pepe, Martinelli, Aubameyang and possibly Saka as the only ones that actually have enough quality to start for Arsenal, then the rest, I'd say, not not possible. So there's a lot of rewrapping that has to happen. I'd say that we definitely need a centre-back. Like, I feel like with Arsenal, their recruitment is very, just very haphazard. Like, it doesn't really look into the future. So I was shouting this for almost a year. I was saying that instead of getting David Luiz, if you paid the extra 5.2 million, you could have got 
Ozan Kabak from Schalke, who's impressed so much for them, the future of Turkey. Um, he was Bundesliga Rookie of the Season before that. And he's just been really solid for, the, for them with Todibo. Um, yeah, just in, terms, just in general, our recruitment needs to improve, really. I'd say that in terms of what we need, Partey is definitely a must for us. Possibly at number six or possibly playing at the side of a 4-3-3. Who knows yet? Um, keep, keep your hands off, Partey. I want him at Spurs. Yeah, we definitely need um, someone to replace Aubameyang or Lacazette. It depends on who leaves. So maybe somebody like Jonathan David, Osimhen, Edouard, even go back for Marlon. There's so many players that you can put there that could work. But yeah, there's just a lot of work that needs to go into the squad, really. And speaking of that work, uh, do you think Arteta is the man to carry out that rebuilding job and will he be given the time and money to do it? In terms of the work that we need to do for Arsenal, I believe that Arteta will be given the time and hopefully the money to do it. Because I don't think he would have accepted this job without assurances that he can do the work properly. So it's going to be a long and slow road for us, really. But as you could see last summer, Emery was backed when he got Pepe, Luis, Tierney, Saliba, Ceballos. So I believe that Arteta will be hopefully backed again. Obviously, things will be a bit harder because of the whole pandemic. But I'm just waiting to see how it goes. Yeah, um, that's a good point about Emery uh, being back with Pepe and the likes. So I think especially the effort Arsenal made to get Arteta that they should, they probably will back him and they really should. Um, yeah. So from a City perspective, I felt like um, Sterling's performance was encouraging because um, throughout 2020, he's not aside from the goals that he hasn't scored, I just felt his overall confidence and his performances have been terrible. And he's he looks like a player who's been crying out for a rest. Um, what do you make of uh, City's performance yesterday and the likes of Sterling and De Bruyne, uh, Richard? Yeah, um, I, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? You know, they've all had, what, two and a half, three months off now. No one's going to come back match fit. Uh, there's, you know, and I think sometimes as fans, we get confused between being fit and match fit. Um I thought some of the players looked leggy. I, I mean, to be honest, I thought the way De Bruyne started, he looked, I don't want to say he looked heavy, but, he, he, you know, he clearly didn't look with it. However, Yeah, that's a good a, point. Uh, he misplaced a few passes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He just looked, for me, he looked a bit leggy, a bit heavy maybe. But but look, as I said earlier, that this is where the class and the quality shines through. Because even if players are unfit, the quality players will stand out. Um but I mean, in all, you know, Sterling, I thought did really well. He, he, he ran the channels well. He sh- I mean, he should have scored a couple before he scored his opener. Um, but what is evident is how big a part confidence plays in football. Because when Raheem Sterling scored the goal, you could just see this sense of relief come off of his face, as if to say, "God, that is the goal I needed." Um, That's true. And and, uh, and yeah, you know, especially the way he uh, got into the box more constantly. Yeah, do you know what? I think he's an absolute goal threat. And, you know, I think that is that is testament to, you know, to, to Pep Guardiola that he took a player that lots of people said, well, he, you know, he doesn't score a lot. He doesn't get in behind the, the, the defenders a lot for a player with pace. And in the last few years, he's become absolutely pivotal to the way City play. And um, I'm not sure if this is right, but I was reading something a few months ago that said, 
of all the players um, that, that Pep Guardiola rotates, apparently uh, Sterling it gets rotated the least. So that shows the, um, the, the the confidence and belief that Guardiola has in Sterling. And, you know, we forget he's still only, what, 23, 24. So, yeah, good performance from him, I thought. Uh, Marmalas, uh, what did you make of uh, the performances of uh, De Bruyne and Sterling yesterday? Uh, for me, De Bruyne is just an absolute dream of a player. Even for players to play with, especially a player like Sterling, uh, Gabriel Jesus. And, and for Sterling, he's such, such a goal, constant goal threat. Like, he always... For me, like, finishing is not a skill that's, like, particularly worked upon. It's just about getting in the right positions at the right time. And... Sterling was doing that before. For example, his last game against United, he was getting into the positions. He just didn't have that confidence, maybe, or the just that in the back of your head, that mentality, oh, I've scored before, I can do it again, I can do it again. So for him to get that goal yesterday, personally for him, was very great. And for example, for City, looking forward to the Champions League campaign in August, it'd be crucial that they get all their players firing for the round of 16, second leg against Man City. Against Real Madrid, Madrid, yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I felt like after the initial um, 30, first 30 minutes that we got better as a team, especially defensively, Laporte got into his stride and then De Bruyne was making those uh, great passes, Sterling making the runs, Sterling confidence gone through the roof as soon as he scored. So yeah, I feel like as long as um, we have more games under our belt, we should be really fine for that Madrid game. And also, I was really impressed with uh, Phil Foden's cameo. He looked a constant threat, got, his, got himself a goal um, with that great run into the box. And he's one that really should be getting a lot of more game time now. And from now and then next season as well, he should be taking David Silva's place and becoming more prominent in the first team. Uh, Richard, um, what are your thoughts on that, on Phil Foden's cameo? Yeah, um, I mean, Phil Foden, I'm, I'm a huge fan of. Um... You know, I, th- I think I-, I think technically he's brilliant. He works really, really hard as well. I mean, I noticed even in the 90th minute, he was tracking right the way back to make clearances from his own box. Um, he gets in the box the other end and scores goals. His link-up play is sublime. Um, even for a small guy, he's quite strong on the ball. He's not easy to, to knock off it. Um, he- he's, uh, he's probably a victim of his own ability. And what I mean by that is, you know, if he played for a Newcastle, even a Spurs or, you know, somebody like that, an Aston Villa, he'd be playing week in, week out. Um, at Man City, obviously, he's got so many players um, in front of him that he's had to be patient. He's bided his time. But we're starting to see him get more and more minutes now, more and more trust from Guardiola. And let's be fair, if you want a coach to play a young player with give and go passing, you know, you know, um, passing it off the wall, um, one twos, you know, he's in the right place with Guardiola, isn't he? And I expect a huge season from Foden next year and the sort of player that England build a team around. Yeah, I feel like it's building towards that because you see, he played in the uh, Carabao Cup final, he's played some games, important games against Leicester, um, at the back end of last season against uh, Spurs when he just got that shock, uh, shock se- uh, selection. And Pep basically said he looked really hungry in training. And then he chucked him in and Foden got the winner. And Guardiola's trust, uh, trust in Foden is increasing uh, day by day. And I feel like next season is really the time that he's going to shine. Uh, 
like you said, the, the best place for him to develop is at City. He just needs to buy his time at City, needs to manage this properly and increase his uh, game time bit by bit. And to, uh, next season, it should be the time where he, he cements his place as a regular. Um, yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, I think what we've got to remember as well is with Man City, unlike other clubs, let, let's just take Liverpool, for example, you kind of know what the team is going to be at Liverpool every week. Um, so you kind of know if you're in that 11, you're going to play nearly every league game. You know, at Man City, players have to be patient and they realise that, you know, not even De Bruyne and Silva would play all 38 games a season. Aguero doesn't. Um, the only player that would would be probably Laporte if he was 100% fit. So people need to be patient with Foden and realise that he is still a young man, um, but his his ability on the ball is frightening um, to the point where I look at him and don't even think he's English, if I'm honest. He he, he plays like a Spanish kid. Yeah, that's why they call him the Stockport Iniesta. Uh, <laughs> there with, you go. Yeah, uh, with Foden, you're right, especially at the City squad. You have uh, Ilkay Gundogan, you have uh, Kevin De Bruyne, um, and David Silva in, and Bernardo Silva, who can play in his position. Um, so he has to buy this time. It's like you have seasoned pros like Riyad Mahrez. You have to come in, learn a new system, buy this time, and uh, be part of the squad rotation. So of course, with a kid like Foden, it's going to take some time to develop him. And plus, with young players, you can't rush their development and just expect them to go from A to B. Um, so I feel like, despite the criticism, Pep is managing his uh, Foden's development quite well. And... We, we'll see that in a year or two when Foden becomes a regular for City and England. Um, yeah, I, th- I think what you've got to look at as well, Mac, is if you if you look at how many games he's played at such a young age already, um, you know, compare that to many other youngsters, they, they wouldn't have broken through into the Man City first team at 17 or 16 or whatever he was. Um, they're a youngster who's only broken into mid-table teams at that age. So, for me, he, he's he's very far ahead of the curve. Um, and, and you know, he's been brilliant for the England under-21s. And for me, it's a matter of time before he's in the England, in the England main setup and, and running the show. Exactly. And plus, like you said, ahead of his development, because he, he's playing Champions League games. He's playing games at the very highest level, creating um, most goals, uh, most chances um, in the Champions League group stages, uh, playing cup finals. Uh, playing a high-quality level for a team like Manchester City. That's, people take that for granted. They think, oh, he's just a young player. He should be playing every week. He should, um, he's slower ahead of his development because the guys like um, Greenwood or Martinelli are getting game time at Arsenal United, respectively. But Foden's situation is quite different. And Foden's situation, I feel like, is being managed properly despite the noise from the outside. Um, yesterday saw the return of um, Leroy Sonner. He didn't get on the pitch, but I think that... Um, got to a point where Sane now we really should try to maximise what we can get out of uh, Bayern Munich and the player I feel like I'll replace him with Kai Havertz. Um, Momolas, what do you make of that uh, Sane situation? For me, Sane first of all, he's an absolutely fantastic player and if a team like Bayern gets him, then they're basically set for 10 years with Gnabry, uh, with Gnabry and Sane on the wings. But Kai Havertz for me is a player that for some weird reason, I can't really see him at Man City because he yeah. plays almost in like a false nine role for Leverkusen. And City do play with a false nine in some certain way. But you got Gabriel Jesus now, for me, who should really be pushing Aguero to start every game, even though he's not that good yesterday. Um, so I would Kai Habits is not a direct replacement one on one. Yeah, of course not. But 
it depends on whether Pep stays or he goes and maybe get someone like Pochettino in. Then maybe you can go in a different direction and say Kai Havertz would be perfect. That's yeah, uh, but that, that's the point I'm making with uh, Kai Havertz. Is you feel like a player, young player like that, you can have him for five to ten years, develop him. And I don't think Pep has a long-term future at City per se. I think you'll see at his contract, but he won't be here beyond that. And you get in a guy like Kai Havertz, and you give him time to develop under Pep. And Aguero's leaving the club, and so we can't just have Gabriel Jesus playing that uh, up top or playing the false nine role. We need a various variety of options. But not only Kai Havertz, I think I'd have to replace him. I think we should try to be looking at uh, bringing back Jaden Sancho. Um, would he make of the whole situation um, with uh, City and Leroy Sane, uh, Richard? Leroy Sane, um, look, absolute brilliant player, great winger. Uh, you know, stretches teams. He's got pace to burn, scores goals. Um, I just get the feeling that there's maybe something that Pep doesn't like. Now, this is purely from an outsider. I, I don't know because it can't be ability. But with Pep Guardiola, if your attitude is not 100% spot on, if you are not part of that pressing, I mean, I think he calls it the seven second rule where, you know, if we lose the ball, that's fine. But we get it back within seven seconds. Um, is is Sana your man for that? I don't know, because over the last few years, he's been overtaken by, you know, Sterling being a regular, as we said. You know, then you've got Mares that's there as well. And, you know, Silver plays there over him. Um it's a tough one. Great player. If you could get 70, 80, 90 million for him, which in this market isn't as crazy as it sounds, I think City would, would cash in on that. Um, having said that, if you want to give him to Spurs for 20 million and a packet of crisps, I'd be, uh-huh. uh, I'd be more than happy to, uh, to ask Daniel Levy if we can do it because uh, I think he's an outstanding footballer. Uh, I think uh, if that deal were to try to take place, Daniel Levy would still try to bargain. Um, but yeah, with yeah. Barney, I think the issue is his application and attitude, like you said. Because, and then there's also the matter of his inconsistency because he'll have a great game. Um, it showed in the back end of last season, like he'll have a great game, um, and then he has games like Leicester City at home or Burnley away uh, during the running, where it's just absolutely terrible and he's not yeah. applying himself. He's not chasing off blue balls. He's just letting them run out. His first touch is poor. He's still a great player. I'd love him to stay and really develop his craft. But if he's not going to put the work in and commit himself to the club, then we may as well just cash in. Well, Mac, one, one of the one of the things that that kind of strengthens that position and that um, uh, you, you know and that opinion is if you look at the the World Cup um, that he wasn't taken to, yeah, um, and and he was by far good enough to be in that squad. But again, the manager was was hinting at. Uh, attitude at work, Ray. Um, you know, for me, almost reminds me of the attitude of kind of like a Deli Alley, a Jesse Lingard. You know, these people who think they've made it without really achieving anything and, and getting a bit big-headed. But look, it, it's a, we're just football fans. It's just opinions, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Um, one player who's been quite poor this season for City is Edison, and yesterday he's involved in that collision with Eric Garcia and Edison. Uh, a lot of people actually being harsh on him, in my opinion. I felt like he was probably told by the medics that he, uh, the Garcia situation wasn't as bad as it looked. So he carried on chatting to Sterling and so forth. Um, and people really got on, into, got on to him on social media. And I felt that that was a massive overreaction. Um, 
in terms of Edison himself, what have you made of this season? He's looked quite poor. Uh, um, yeah, for me, it's not that he was poor in terms of like the way Pep wants him to play, but he was poor in terms of like saving shots, for example. I remember especially when Lamella scored at Etihad when Pochettino was there really early on in the season. And his position, positioning just seemed really poor, for example. And he's had some games, I remember against United, where Martial scored against him, where he palmed the shot into the net. And it's not just what you expect, like a top keeper, who had a really good season last season as well. He's not, not had a massive fall, but certainly a reduction in his levels. But I think he's still a very good goalkeeper and the right goalkeeper for Pep Guardiola. Yeah, I feel like... Um given the break and probably a new season next season that he should probably go back to himself. Um, yeah, Carrier, what have you made of Edison's form this season? As you saw yesterday against City, he's quite important in their build-up. You can see him sometimes push push forward to um, help form a five of the other City players and they had many passing lanes against us. So I feel Edison's ability on the ball is very vital to how City play. Um, but then when it comes to shot stopping, I don't think he's that convincing, really. Like, don't get me wrong, he's not the worst keeper when it comes to shot stopping, but I just feel like he's very average, let's say, when it comes to it. And I feel there's much better shot stoppers in the league, such as Dean Henderson, uh, there's Bern Leonard, there's Allison, who Allison for me is the best, like the best in the league, the most well-rounded too. So yeah, that's really my thoughts on him. Yeah, that's true. I feel like his shot stopping at times, you, you see that he can actually make some really good saves like Hoffenheim at home and other games as well that he's made some really good saves, but his shot stopping is just too inconsistent. But I don't think it's going to be a problem long term. Uh, tomorrow on Friday, United play Spurs and it's Oli versus Mourinho part two. Uh, one of the big talking points from United camp uh, ahead of the big game tomorrow is... Um, Pogba and uh, Bruno potentially playing together for the first time. Uh, Momalas, uh, what do you make of um, that situation with Pogba and Bruno? How do you think Oli's got to fit them in to the same side and make it work? Um, so first of all, it's obviously it's really great that we have a player like Paul Pogba back. So obviously for him, he's had a difficult season being injured. But this is almost like a World Cup period, a nine-game like block of games to play to focus get United into third hopefully and then we have Europa League in August as well and he's basically our wild card him and Bruno the creativity that they will bring but I think for, for Friday I've been hearing reports that he might not actually start and probably be benched and I think that's almost a wise decision because whoever plays alongside Matic so Scott McTominay or Fred ahead, and then Bruno ahead of them would be able to start against Tottenham. And I think, especially as we saw in the first game, that Scott McTominay had an absolutely amazing performance. And in the future, long-term future, possibly in a pivot alongside Scott McTominay. So Scott McTominay, Pogba, deep lying, and then Bruno ahead. That's how I think Ole would try to fit them in. So it's Ole versus uh, Mourinho, part two. Um, what do you, how do you feel about the jobs they've done um, in terms of, yeah, specifically the jobs they've done. Do you see Oli's making a serious improvement and there's a future for United that they didn't seem to be under Mourinho? 
First of all, I absolutely despise Jose Mourinho, but I'll try to be unbiased. So <laughs> yeah, I'll try not to let my bias come into it. So when he first initially came to United, I did not want him as manager at the first place. So when Ludwig van Gaal left, I didn't want Mourinho. I backed him till Seville. Seville away where we lost to 2-1 at home and got knocked out of Champions League and he benched our best players. And for me... The difference, the main difference between Ole and Mourinho is that Mourinho manages with the expectation that he will not do anything that will harm his reputation. So he will not do anything that would be his basic for himself. Ole, he doesn't care about his reputation. He doesn't care about his own future managerial career. He wants to do what's best for the club. That's why he let Lukaku go. That's why he let Alexis go. That's why we had especially when you think back to the December period where we had a lot of injuries and we really did not have a big squad. But he knows that's the best for the future. So, and that's what we needed at that time because we tried to go with David Moyes, uh, a relatively stable hand. Um, Louis van Gaal, fantastic coach abroad, was too old. We came with Jose Marino, a proven winner. And now it was, we had to go with something different. We had to go in a different direction because it was becoming too stale. And now Ole has put in that future plan we don't think for one year or two years. We think about five years, ten years into the future. What will the team look like? And that's why, for me, personally, I, I like to think that there is a future with Ole. Um, but do you think Ole is the guy to really see it through and be a winner at United and win Premier League titles, win Champions Leagues and see through the rebuilding job? Because he's made some really good signings like Aaron Juan Bissaka, Bruno Fernandes. But can he actually get the best out of them and make them into a winning team? I mean, he's sort of the manager that he, I've seen some reports that he doesn't actually train them in training. So he just oversees it as the manager, so as like the head. So it was Kieran McKenna, Michael Carrick. I would like to see personally some improvements in that training coaches so that he can push themselves. But for me, I think as long as he gets the players that he needs, he gets the time that he requires to rebuild the club. I personally do think possibly he could be... Uh, coach that and he's learning on the job as well so that's what I think I think he could be the right man yeah that's a good point about learning on the job because do you think now that he's realised one of the big issues United have had is breaking down small teams and do you think that he's going to find a way to fix it how do you think should be the way to fix it I mean personally they've done well in the big games Um, yeah we've done well in the big games which is obviously a really good sign but against smaller teams such as Bournemouth away, West Ham away. That's really like silly points dropped. And for me, it's almost a mix of... Though first of all, we had a lot of injuries at the time. So I think Pogba's out. We never had Bruno. So there's lack of creativity in the side. So a Matic and McTominay pivot will not give you any creativity whatsoever. And also in terms of generally the players' mentality. So last season when Ole first came in, we went on an amazing run. But as soon as top four became available, it was an option to get. The players just faltered. We just had to beat Huddersfield and Cardiff, who were relegated at the time, to get top four. And the players, they couldn't hack it. Their mentalities were not right. So it's almost trying to fix that mentality that to believe that you are good enough for United, that's why you're there. And to hopefully so, with Rashford back, with Bruno back and Pogba back, we should, with the relatively easy running we have, we should get top four. Um, speaking of top four race, um, Spurs really need a win as well, um, and they have they're boosted by the return of Harry Kane. What do you make of um, the return of Harry Kane, and do you see him getting back to his best, Richard? 
Well, listen, it's an interesting one because without Harry Kane and uh, and Hongmin Son to a degree, Spurs are a very average football club. Um, and I know lots of my Spurs followers won't thank me for saying that, but unfortunately it's true. Um, yeah, look, what we need, we need Harry Kane to come back and we need him to hit the ground running. Um, but again, it goes back to that point, Mac, of, you know, Harry Kane hasn't played a game since I think January the 1st. So, you know, he'll be fit but not match fit. Um, how sharp will he be? I don't know. How are the injuries that keep piling up every season? How are they going to catch up with him? Um, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, in terms of the top four race, let's be fair. If Man United beat us tomorrow night, then we're out the top four race because we're already seven points off it. Tomorrow night will be 10 points off it if we lose. And it's too big a gap with eight, eight games after that to go. So, I'm not expecting top four. I think um, the key thing for me now, top four is a bonus. The key thing for me is, you know, getting some sort of consistency together with the players, get keeping their fitness and uh, getting to the summer so we can see Mourinho implement his, his own ideas. Um, look, Mourinho is one of the best managers in world football. Um, Man United fans seem to have this chip on their shoulder, but let's be, let's be really honest. He, he took Man United with an absolutely disgustingly average squad to win two trophies and finish second to Man City. Um, and, you know, if you had given him more time, you know, something would have happened. So in football, we're all a bit knee jerk. But look, for me, you know, Harry Kane being back positive. But for me, I care more about what we do in the summer. I appreciate your optimism, but I really think um, you're wrong in terms of Mourinho. He was one of the best managers in the world. And him finishing second with United really wasn't solely down to him, especially considering the season David De Gea had in 2017-2018. Uh, and in terms of the two trophies, is the Europa League and the League Cup, with all due respect, yeah, but, minor trophies. Yeah, but Mac, you've got to remember, this Man United squad was in absolute disarray. If you look at that squad... He built go, squad. No, he didn't. He just joined. He didn't build that squad. If you um, look... He, he like, signed Pogba, uh, he signed Slatan. Uh, he signed Mkhitaryan, he signed Alexis. He signed quite a few that Oli has now had to get rid of. Yeah, okay. Okay. Well. okay, absolutely. But, but you know, look, you don't, you don't turn a team overnight into, into league winners. What he took over was not a great Man United team. And to go all the way in a Europa League, people really underestimate how many games and how difficult that is at the same time as going on a cup run in the league to win the, the win the league cup you know you've got to remember this isn't man united of 10 years ago this isn't the man united that should be winning league titles so to say he's not one of the best managers in the world every club he's been at he's won trophies every single club he's been at so i don't understand this this kind of accusation that he's not a good manager anymore when he keeps winning trophies yeah, but in terms of um, the jobs he's done recently, Chelsea, the way it ended, United, the way it ended, he's losing his touch. There are other better managers out there, so he, I wouldn't really put him in the top five or top ten now. Uh, okay, but yeah. so if you can tell me ten managers, even five managers better than Jose Mourinho, then, right then I'll listen to you. Right now, five managers better than Jose Mourinho. Jurgen Klopp, Pep Guardiola, Diego Simeone, um, Mauricio Sarri, um, Oh, crap. Uh, exactly, exactly right. So, so now let me pull you apart on that, right? So Jurgen Klopp, absolutely doing a wonderful job. 
doing a wonderful job. But Jurgen Klopp has been at that club now for five Frank years. N- no, absolutely not. Oh, based on what? If we, we, you've just told me, you've just told me that Jose Mourinho, who won the Europa League and the League Cup and finished second with not Man United, I'm talking about currently. I'm talking about currently, right now in world football. Mourinho is not a top five manager. Listen, you have to do something to force your way into that top five. You, you can't. His legacy, he is. Yes, I'll give you that. He's a serial winner. He he has a CV to back it up, and he was a great manager. But right now, in terms of modern football, he hasn't evolved. You've just put in Maurizio Sarri. Okay, sorry, that was wrong. Uh, That was wrong. I I was struggling for names. But Zidane. Okay, but Zidane. Okay, so so we could turn around and say Zinedine Zidane. He's not even winning. The, he's not even winning the um, the Spanish league. So so as he, he won it, he won it. And Real Madrid okay. technically don't win as well. Yeah, okay. Top right now. But but my my point is, if if you're going to turn around and tell me he's not a top five ten manager, you need to put managers in that bracket that have done it. I'll give you Zidane because he's won stuff. But when you start talking about Maurizio Sarri, who's won one title, I'll admit I was wrong at that one. It just the name somehow came into my head for some reason. My bad. But the other other managers that I mentioned are correct. They're better than him, right? Right. Okay. Who just said Pochettino? Me. Right, okay. Listen, my friend, as even coming from a Spurs fan, you cannot put Maurizio Pochettino in a top five managers in the world. The man has won absolutely zero in his career, has messed up every single big game that he's ever had, and has openly said that winning trophies builds egos. That is not a ma- and has been sacked from Tottenham Hotspur, leaving them 14th in the league. That is not a top five manager in world football. We've got to, you've got to be honest here, right? We are so knee-jerk in football that we think things change in a year. Managers have to have a legacy. You have to prove it year in, year out before you are classed a world-class player or a world-class manager. And the managers you named there on, Frank Lampard has done nothing. He's, he's sitting fourth in the Premier League, in a poor Premier League. It's not, he's not done anything great, has he? But he's adapted to modern football. He's a fresh change. He's the manager of the future. He's the one who's going to... He's not going to be... I'm not saying he's going to be better than um, Mourinho's legacy or anything. But as of right now, who I would have managing my football club, I'd rather have Frank Lampard manage a football club if I was the chairman right now than Jose Mourinho. So, so, So you're telling me a manager who's had seven months experience in the Premier League, you would rather have than, than Jose Mourinho? Yes, because Jose Mourinho is outdated dinosaur. He's finished. Tell me how. He's, he finished, uh, he left Chelsea 10th or he left Chelsea 16th in the league in, in the 15-16 season. Then he rocked right. up at United, finished 6th after spending 100 odd million. Um, right. Finished second solely because David De Gea was out, playing out of his skin. <laughs> finished 19 and, points and, behind and, the rivals. And, and then he got sacked at United. Matt, if you're going to give your opinions cred- credence, right? What you can't do is turn around and say, well, he finished 10th, it's all his fault. He finished 2nd, oh, it's because of David De Gea. You can't do that. Okay, okay, okay. okay, okay. We'll give him second place here. One second place finish at United and uh, Category B trophies in terms of the Europa League and uh, League Cup. Okay, and what did the pundits say about him? The pundits and Mourinho turned around and said that his greatest achievement as a manager was taking that awful Man United team to two trophies and second place. That team was not awful. They had, I, they had, um, they could win. 
the Europa League this season and the FA Cup, would he get the same backing? Or would people say it was by luck that he won it? So, sorry, say that again, mate. Um, what about if United win the Europa League and the FA Cup this season? We're in the quarters of both as well. If Man United win the FA Cup and the Europa League this season, then Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has done an absolute amazing job. Because again, your squad isn't as great as it was. And that's my point. It is good enough to win Europa League though. That's the thing. It is good enough to win the Europa League. Okay, okay, but we'll see then. So this, I believe, the squad Man United have got now is better than the squad Jose Mourinho had, right? I believe. I agree with you. I agree with you. Okay, so... that squad... so, So by your reckoning... Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is going to walk the Europa League. You're going to win the Europa League because it's easy to win and your squad's good enough. It's not easy to win, but our squad should be good enough to win the Europa League, especially this season when it's only one leg. Okay, but my my man, the the difference is, right, not only did he go through, I mean, how many, the Europa League is a gruelling amount of games. He did that and a cup run, yeah, in the League Cup to win it and finished second. I mean, that's... That's no, he finished sixth that season. He finished sixth uh, that season. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the year after, what I'm talking about is okay. those tremendous wins, right? Now, at, again, this is all context. If we look at Man United 10 years ago and say they won the Europa League and the League Cup, you go, <laughs> well, that's poor, right? But the team Jose Mourinho took over with the year when you finished sixth, there's a reason why he went in there. And he won two trophies, now, Man United fans, you're used to winning leagues. You're used to winning Champions Leagues. But he did what he could with the team he had. Then he finished second. And then, OK, it didn't work out the next season. But what, what strikes me with all of this is all anyone wants to pick up on is the bad start to the season when he left. He's a dinosaur. Well, he wasn't a dinosaur when he finished second. He wasn't a dinosaur when he won two cups with you. But he's a dinosaur because he had a bad start to that season. It can't. It doesn't just switch. You can't just switch like that. He finished 19 points behind the league winners, though. He did finish second, but it was not. There was not a title race that year. Okay, City guys. were basically clear. Okay. It's not. Guys. City were flying. Guys, um, I think we should move on from this point now. Um, I think we all okay. agree to disagree. Um, Richard. Right. Um, Debate. Debate. Yeah, Richard on Spurs. Um, I, okay, I take it you trust Mourinho to do the rebuilding job then, but do you trust Daniel Levy to provide the funds? And no. Do you think the players are out there that Spurs... Who do, who do you want out there that Spurs can get? So, so the difficulty is, do I, do I trust Jose Mourinho? Absolutely, 100%. The man's a winner. Do I trust Daniel Levy? No, the man's a serial loser. He's been at Tottenham for 20 years. He's won one League Cup in 20 years of ownership. Um... We don't buy what we need. We don't buy the calibre we need. I mean, even this morning, you look and you see that Chelsea are signing Timo Werner, and then you look, Spurs are on the hunt for Ryan Fraser on a free. The the, the golfing class in what these clubs are signing is vast. Um, Who do I want? Um, First of all, Spurs need a defensive midfielder. I'm looking at a Thomas Partey. I'm looking at a Sumer. I'm looking at a a Wilfred um, Ndidi. Even last resort, a, a Hoiberg. Um, we need some fullbacks. We need a centre back. We need a, a backup striker. Uh, it's it, it's a big job, Mac. It's a really big job that Mourinho's got, and I don't expect it to to happen in a year. I, I think it's going to be two or three years. Yeah, it is a really big job. It'll be interesting interesting to see if Mourinho sticks around for it and Levy provides the funds. Um, so yeah. there's some other games this weekend going on. Um, 
some of them I want a quick uh, yeah so give me a quick prediction um, after I read the game uh, we'll start with Carriers Norwich Southampton I'll say 3-1 Southampton okay um, Tottenham Man United I would say United are going to win that 3-1 okay 2-3-1 predictions interesting uh, Watford Leicester City uh, Leicester will win that one 2-0 um, Brighton against Arsenal yeah uh, if you could give a prediction and go into detail uh, about that game it would be nice Brighton and Arsenal um, I'd expect us expect us to beat Brighton just to bounce back from what's happened as Mikel said you have to erase what happened in this game because nothing went to plan but yeah I feel like we might see Pepe in the weekend hopefully and hopefully we'll be feeling the ball to Aubameyang more. So I'd say 3-1 Arsenal. Well, 3-1 is a popular, uh, popular prediction from you. Um, yeah. <laughs> West Ham Wolves. Um, yeah, West Ham Wolves. Uh, West Ham Wolves. I don't think West Ham have been that good form this season. So I'd say Wolves will win that one. Maybe 2-0. Bournemouth Crystal Palace. I'm going to go for a 0-0 draw of that one. Newcastle, Sheffield United. How do you think uh, Sheffield United will bounce back from the disappointment of disallowed goal the other night? They're quite a strong team. I think they'll be full of fire for that game. So I think they're going to win that 1-2-1. One, one. Um, Aston Villa, Chelsea? Chelsea win 3-0. Okay. Everton, Liverpool. Interesting game. That the derby. Liverpool now don't have the chance to win it at Goodison. But we'll see uh, how that goes. Um, Everton, Liverpool. Um, I think that's going to be a tight game just because it's the most side derby so form kind of goes out the window but I feel like I always expect Liverpool to win it anyway so I'm just going to say 1-0 Okay and Burnley City Monday night game um, I feel like Man City are going to win that again so I'm going to say 3-0 Okay guys uh, quickly before we wrap up um, of the games that I've mentioned which one will you be uh, which few will you be watching uh, Momolas um, I'll be watching Tottenham United, obviously. I'd possibly watch Watford Leicester. Uh, West Ham Wolves. I might watch for Declan Rice because I really like watching him. And the most side derby, probably. And Richard, what about you? I mean, yeah, definitely be watching the Spurs game tomorrow night and then whatever whatever games the fiancé allows me to put on, really. Um, <laughs> but yeah, just, just watch as many football games as possible and, and just happy it's back. Yeah, same. Um, I'm going to be watching uh, Tottenham United, um, Villa Chelsea, Everton Liverpool and City Burnley. Yeah, I'm a bit of a top six snob. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, thanks for coming on, Mamalas, uh, Richard and Karius. Thank you for hosting Thank us you. and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, thanks guys. Nice. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks for having me. And always, um, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, we'll be back on Monday uh, reviewing the weekend's games and previewing the midweek games as well um thank you very much for listening until next time goodbye thank you bye bye thank you thank bye. you